0: Invite you invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to Luke fifteen. Luke's gospel is filled with contrasting pairs of people. Um, he does it in two different ways. He spends a lot of time contrasting various different men and women. He does that in Luke one. We contrasts Zachariah and the dream that he had in Mary uh, and the vision, I should say, of the angel and the communication. He contrasts Simeon and Anna in Luke 2, a possessed man and a Peter's mother-in-law in Luke 4, uh, the centurion's servant and the son of the widow from Nain in Luke 7, um, women and men who traveled with Jesus along the road in chapter 8, A crippled man and a crippled woman who both were healed in Luke 13 and 14. Uh, Men and women, both at the cross, at the tomb, and at the resurrection in the last two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. But he also does a second set of people. Uh, Throughout his Gospel in four or five different places, he contrasts Pharisees and what Luke terms as sinners. It's a theological term for sure meaning that we have sinned against God, but in Jesus' day was also a sociological term, meaning that there were ramifications in relationships and in society and how people viewed you. Luke 7 is the story, the true story, of Simon the Pharisee and the woman from the city who comes in and wipes Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. And there's a great contrast between the two of them. Luke 14 is between a Pharisee and uh, Jesus, uh, who heals the man of Dropsy on the Sabbath, and how the Pharisees uh, think that Jesus was wrong for doing it. Luke 18 is the parable that Jesus tells about the Pharisee and his self-righteous prayer in the temple, and the man who uh, could only beat his chest as a tax collector uh, and not even look to heaven uh, because of how much of a sinner he was. Luke 19 is a story about the crowd and religious people bringing Jesus into the town, and Jesus, instead of having lunch with all the religious people, um, has lunch instead with Zacchaeus. And their complaint was that he went to eat and have lunch with a known sinner. Um, That is the same complaint that uh, begins this passage in Luke 15. If you look at verses 1 through 3, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and... There's two groups of people. And this is one of those, in chapter 15, one of those contrasts. He it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumble, saying, This man receives. He welcomes. He's glad to have relationships with them. In fact, accepts them as the friend. And thus Jesus is friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he eats with them. And so, in light of that, Jesus tells three parables. The lost coin, the lost sheep, and the one that we're focusing on, the lost sons. You see, these sinner stories, in contrast, in comparison with Pharisees, they are there for us to contrast true brokenness and repentance so that we, as we read them, would get a good idea of what real repentance looks like. Repentance is a big deal. Brokenness is a big deal in Luke's presentation of Jesus' ministry. John the baptizer, who foreshadow, or I should, was the forerunner of Jesus, he preached repentance in chapter 3. Jesus comes, and in chapter 5 and verse 32, says to everyone that he talks to, repent, for the kingdom of God is at heaven. He preaches it throughout Luke's gospel. At the end of the gospel, it's so important that before he goes to heaven, he commissions his disciples, and as a result, all of us, to go into all the world and preach the gospel of Repentance. He says that. I mean, it really is a framework or a bookend for Luke's gospel of Jesus' ministry. But in our text this morning, he wants to talk about repentance. He wants to talk about brokenness. And he wants to use two sons. One who represents tax collectors and sinners. That's the younger son. And the other one, the elder son, is the Pharisee's son. And he wants us, in doing so, listen... He wants you to understand and think about which one you are, what kind of repentance and brokenness characterizes your life, and we're by far vastly going to spend our time on the younger son, but we're also going to finish with the elder son, and I want, as God speaks the word today, I, I pray that you would ask him to speak to your heart, to you would find out today what kind of repentance that you have lived and do have in your life. So let me give them to you. We'll unpack them one at a time. There are in the younger son, there are three marks of true repentance. Okay? Three marks of true repentance. And let me say before I get to those three marks that the key factor that begins to change the younger son, you're going to find and change him on the inside, what brings him what brings him to his senses. Let's ask that. That that's the New King James version brings him to himself, brings him to his senses. What is the key factor that begins to restore him back to the right relationship with his father? Um, how, what, what is it that, what is the fuse that detonates his father's love into radical action for his son and his waywardness? You know what it is? Repentance. He came to himself. It's a Semitic idiom, and it means repentance. When the When Hebrew people used he came to himself or his senses, it meant that there was repentance going on. And see, that tells me right up front that if the father in the story represents God and he does, that we are being told by Jesus in this parable that if you want the love of God this morning, if you want the love of God, if you want the life-changing power of God to explode into your life, it is going to require brokenness and repentance in your life. Repentance is the key to having a relationship with God. Martin Luther, in the 1500s, when he nailed his 95 thesis against the Catholic Church on the door at the Wittenberg Church, To all the corruptions and things that were in the Catholic Church as a Catholic monk, he wrote them all and put them on the door so everyone could read them. The very first one of those 95 theses read like this, and I quote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. And then he wrote this, all of life is repentance. Nancy Lee DeMoss, in our day, said this in her book, Brokenness. True brokenness is an ongoing, constant way of life. True brokenness is a lifestyle, a moment-by-moment lifestyle of agreeing with God about the true condition of your heart and life. That's what Jesus is after by telling the story of the younger son. He's after true repentance. Repentance. He wants to give younger sons and Pharisees who don't think they need repentance. He wants them to show them how, just how much they are wrong about that, no matter how religious or righteousness they may, righteous they may see themselves. So let me break it down. Let me give you the anatomy of what repentance is, true repentance is really all about. Number one, true repentance is supernatural, In verse 17, you could read it again for yourself. It says, he came to himself. He came to his senses. Now, modern people like us, and maybe this is you, we think that if there's a way to experience deep life change, then it ought to be something that we should get in bullet points. Maybe on a PowerPoint presentation. We need a set of numbered steps that we could do one, two, three And this is how you repent and get right with God. And that therefore, that when we get them down, we can do it on our own terms and in our own timing. We want to be able to control that. Now think about that for a second. Do you decide when you're high on drugs that you're going to stop? When you are drunk completely out of your mind with alcohol, are you able to decide on your own that it's time to quit? And the answer is, No, you can't. See, the sins in your life, hear me, the sins in your life, the patterns of disobedience in your life that are making the most problems for you and everyone around you, by definition, are the ones that you cannot see. See, you're in denial about what your life is really like and that your sin is an addiction. The human heart as one author I read this week says, runs on denial like a car runs on gas. Repentance is the moment that you come to your senses about your sin, namely, that you can't get over it on your own. But the question is, how does that happen? You know how repentance happens? Here's how it happens. This is what the Bible's very clear about. It happens to you. You don't just come to the bottom of your life and someday repent and say, hey, you know, I'm just going to get to Jesus and I'm going to... It doesn't work that way. It happens to you. Look at these verses, ready? I'm going to list them off for you. And I think we're going to put them on the screen. Let me give you one at a time. Acts 5.31, it says this. God exalted him, meaning Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior. Look at it. To give repentance. Israel could not come to have Jesus as their Messiah and Savior and leader and Lord of their lives unless God gave it to them. They couldn't just come to the end of themselves. They weren't going to turn to him on their own. If he didn't give it, they weren't getting it. Acts eleven eighteen, 18. And they glorified God saying, Then to the Gentiles also. So it's not just Israelite people who needed God to give them this. Gentiles do. In other words, all of us do. That God has granted, see it? God has granted repentance that leads to life. If you're going to come to the end of your sin and of your own selfishness, and it's going to lead you to life, it's only because God is working in you first to bring you to that place and lead you so that you will have life in his name. Romans 2.4, the Apostle Paul, he writes this and talking about the same concept. And 2.4, or do you presume on the riches of his what what brings you to repentance? Well, his kindness does. His forbearance, he waits on you, he has patience with you, it says. And, and you know why? Not knowing. Not knowing, this is what people don't understand, that after all this time, and you say, I don't know why, you look back and say, I don't know why God just didn't give up on me. You know why? He was using your circumstances and the sins and the consequences of them to bring you to a place that you would have the ability to respond in repentance to them. So it's God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. If God hadn't been kind to you and graced you and merciful to you, you don't understand the reason God hasn't struck you dead or, or, or condemned you eternally yet is because he's wanting to use those circumstances in your life to bring repentance. This is what the pastors view. This is how we were to view ministry from the pulpit or counseling with people. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patient, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? Why do pastors act like God with people who don't turn to him? Here's why. That God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. We just keep praying as we preach the Bible and we keep talking to people that God will use it through their circumstances, to bring them to a place where they respond to what God is doing in their life with brokenness and repentance. That's how someone is saved. Repentance is not just something that you decide on your own. It's something that God gives you and you respond to it. I can tell you story after story and I've said this one before, Bill Zoller, who came to me the first five years of my ministry here, he was having trouble in his marriage, and he knew something was wrong, but he didn't know that God was being kind to him and bringing conflict into his marriage, because he was an atheist, and he didn't even believe in God. But he wanted to save his marriage, and so he said, Pastor Walker, can I talk to you? And you know the story, I've given it before, that every time I said we could talk about his marriage... I'd get the opportunity to talk to him about Jesus. And he agreed. And over about three or four visits, at the end of it, he gave his life to Jesus and, and became a Christian and served as a deacon in his church. But how did that happen? He didn't know it, but you know what? eventually came to his senses. He came to himself and he realized what his sin really was about and god saved him i remember justin black who was the member of the the crypts downtown in the gangs and i've told you the story you've seen his testimony you've heard him yourself but i remember how crazy it was to even talk to him about salvation after all the things that he had done but you know what god brought him to his senses see that's what god does when he sets you up for repentance can i say it that way When you do wrong things, it sets up strains in the fabric of reality because that's how God's made it. When you disobey the way God has designed for you to live in this world, it eventually leads to a breakdown. And sometimes even to a meltdown, see. And I've seen people who God has used circumstances and the results of their sinful choice just break them down In ways they never thought possible. They never saw themselves in these horrible places that they end up in their lives. And and then comes the moment that they say to themselves something like this, What have I been doing? Like, what is wrong with me? How could I have thought that? How could I have said that? I cannot believe I did that. And see, God was using that in their lives. That's exactly what he was doing when the phrase in the parable of Jesus, when he came to himself, you see, God was setting him up to be able to have the ability by the Spirit of God to repent of his sins. And if you would look at me, look at the text 14 through 16, see the verses in those texts before 17, before he comes to his senses, you know what was going on? Well, he was having relational breakdown. He'd been separated from his father. He wasn't a, his elder brother, his family. He wasn't there. He'd gone onto a far country, and the people that he thought cared about him only cared about his money and the girls that he had bought, and all the things that were taking place sexually and sinfully in life. It was ruining him. And the Bible says, "Listen to this." He not only had a relational breakdown, but look at the text: financial breakdown. Verse it says in verse fourteen, when he had spent everything. See, he had all this money. And and let me tell you this, the breakdowns are connected. Relationally, often leads to financially, spiritually, all of it. His Bible said that he spent everything. So he went from having everything to nothing. Look at verse 16. He's been feeding slop, and it says this, no one gave him anything. Do you see how now it's not just relational breakdown, financial breakdown, now it's emotional breakdown. See, he had everybody caring about him, and now he has. it says, no one. It's not just that he had nothing anymore. Yes, he went from having everything to nothing, but he also went from having everyone to having no one. See that? And that's what happens when God uses circumstances in your life to break you down. He wants to put away all the crutches, all the things that you lean on, all the things that you think that you can control in your life. He went from everything to nothing and from everyone to no one. He had nothing to to support himself and he had no one who even cared. They didn't even care. They cared more about the pigs than they did him. And the idea is you're to think this emotionally he feels alone he feels empty and he feels desperate can i tell you a principle i've learned by reading this passage see you may be done with sin but that sin isn't done with you See, so you may get to the place in your life where i'm tired of the consequences i'm tired of the repercussions of these choices And you may think that you're done with sin, but let me tell you this, sin is never done with you. And it brought him so low in his life. He had no one and he had nothing. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? That you feel like, Lord, I don't know what else could go wrong. I have nothing. I have no one. My life is wrecked and it's ruined. And so relational breakdown, financial breakdown, emotional breakdown leads to physical breakdown. Now he doesn't know how he's going to make it. He's eating pig food. And God uses, hear me, God uses all of those circumstances, all those breakdowns to melt him down so that he could bring him to repentance. Would you hold your finger here and turn to Psalm 51 this morning? We're going to look at it in a couple different things. (coughs) If you are familiar with Psalm 51, you'll know that it's the greatest, Psalm and story of repentance in the Bible. David has committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then she put, he put her husband on the front lines, Uriah, and had him murdered. And it went for a year trying to hide it because he wasn't broken over it. He wouldn't repent of it until Nathan pointed his finger in his face and said, you're the man. And finally, David repents... Of it, but I want to show you something about what brokenness is all about and how it happens. He says in 51:7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Watch the phrase: Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Do you hear what he says? Lord, you know what? I feel like you've broken me. You broke my bones. God, you let all these things happen and, and I lost the baby that I had with Bathsheba and you, you took its life. And God, my, my whole family is falling apart. And see, you know what he says? God You have broken my bones. You have used my external circumstances. See, you've broken me down relationally in every possible way. Father, I'm about as low as I possibly can. Why does God allow brokenness to come into your life? Can I tell you this? Hear me. Broken bones are for broken hearts. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God, here he uses broken again, are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. You know why? Look around at your life. Look at things that have taken place in the past and perhaps even taking place right now. Do you know why God breaks bones? So that he can break hearts. Your heart. That's why he's allowed these things into your life. And he wants you to respond to that brokenness that he is brought into your life with repentance pastor walker how do i do that well you know it's supernatural so let me just say this god is working at you and why you're here this morning and why you're listening on live stream and why he's talking to you is he hasn't give up on you he's still working in your circumstances he's breaking bones in your life because he wants to break your heart if you'll respond to him how do i do that well let's look at the second one So true repentance is supernatural, but look at the text. True repentance is vertical. In verses 18 and 21, he says it twice when he's rehearsing and then when he actually says it to his father. Here's what he says. I will go to my father and here's what I'm going to say. I have sinned against heaven. Heaven is often used as a symbol for God. But you might say, Pastor Walker, hold on a minute. Now, hasn't this younger son sinned against his father and really hurt him? Yes. Hasn't he hurt his elder brother? Yes. Has he hurt his mom and the family? Yes. Has he sinned against the community that he was in? Yes. Then why is it that first thing he says is that he has sinned against God in heaven? Psalm 51, one more time. David is confessing his sin. He's praising God that he's broken his bones because he's come to his senses, right? What are David's words like when he sins? Psalm 51.4 says this, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You say, come on, wait a minute. Didn't, didn't he sin against Bathsheba? yes. Didn't he sin against Uriah? Yes. Didn't he sin against the nation because as his king he wasn't an example of holiness? Yes. So then why does he say you and you only? Here's why. Please listen. Because we have to be careful. This is so important. Because biblical life-changing repentance starts by understanding that the sins you have committed are first and foremost against God. Can I tell you why that's so important? And maybe this is some of you this morning. Because if we're not careful, your response to your pain, your response to the situations in your life that are ruining everything, that are resulting from your sinful choices, your repentance can be a form of nothing more than self-pity and self-absorption. You know why? Because you don't primarily see them as sins against God. In marriage counseling, I've seen this many times. Let me illustrate it for you. A wife is finally, after years of living with a selfish husband, she's done with it. And so one day, seemingly out of the blue to the husband, but it's not, she announces, I'm leaving you. I'm done with this marriage. Of course, he's shocked and doesn't know what to do. And and so he says, hey, hey, hey. Will you give me another chance if I'm willing to go with you to counsel with the pastor? She says, really? He says, I'll do it. I'll do anything. And so they go together and they get counseling from the pastor. And for a while, things are better. And he gets reports from the wife that things are going really well. But just maybe a few months later, he gets reports from the wife that things have gone back to normal and the selfishness has returned. And you know what the reason is? It's because the husband was upset about his sin for himself. He was upset because he didn't want to lose the stability of his marriage. He didn't want to lose his wife. Now, now let me say this. Did the guy start out saying from the very beginning, hey, I'll get my wife to go to counseling and I'm planning for that, but eventually I'm going to go back to my No, he never planned that. He didn't plan that. But it happened. And you know why? Because he really didn't repent down deep in his life. He didn't repent first to God. He repented because he didn't want to endure the situation and circumstance that his sinful choices had remained. So he never really permanently changed in his life. He only got upset about how it affected him and not about how it affected God. Stephen Charnock who's a famous Puritan, in his writings, explains the difference between a selfish, self-pity kind of repentance and a true biblical repentance. He says this, selfish repentance arises out of a consideration of God's justice. And by that, he means out of a fear of if I don't repent, what would God do to me? But he says, a gospel repentance arises out of a consideration of God's goodness. In other words, I repent not because of what God will do to me, but instead of what God has done for me. It asks the question, how could I ever do this to him? How could I treat God like this? So it begs the question, doesn't it? When you say to God, God, I have sinned against you, like the prodigal son does, what are you really meaning by it? Are you upset about yourself and what God might do to you and how he might punish you and and your life might be miserable? Or are you upset first and foremost about God and how you've offended his holiness and how you've spurned his sacrificial love on the cross? Does that even come into the equation? When it comes right down to it, true repentance is not just being upset that you have broken God's rules, but even more so that you have broken God's heart. And until we get to that place, our repentance will be superficial at best. So... Supernatural repentance given to you by God. Here's what it looks like. It it says this, it will be vertical. It will see that mostly my sin is offensive to God. But that's not all. Because true repentance is not only vertical, it's horizontal. Remember what he says twice? I have sinned, Father, I have sinned against heaven and, and before you, it says in those verses See, true repentance is always horizontal and vertical. What does it look like when vertical, horizontal, vertical repentance is true? It'll look like this horizontally. It'll be a repentance that has no self-justification. It'll have no minimalization or trivialization of the behavior. There will be no whitewashing of the sin, no matter, no making excuses, no blame shifting of other. Notice in the text that he doesn't come to his dad and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, but you got to realize that this wasn't the easiest house to grow up in. That I got an elder brother who's a Pharisee and you know how often he condemned me. I just finally said, forget it. I'm just going to live the way I want. He doesn't say any of those things. He didn't say, hey, we're really wealthy. We have a really good life. You know how hard it is when you have all these things at your fingertips and how alluring that money is? That's not what he says. He didn't say, I'm some young man. I'm only a a, a 20-year-old guy. Don't you expect me to at least sow a few wild oats? He didn't say any of those things. You know why? Because when true repentance is horizontal, it takes complete responsibility without making excuses at all. There is no conditions. There is no if or or phrases attached to it. It doesn't minimalize responsibility, it maximizes it. But even with all of that, the younger son made a mistake. He comes back, he's repenting vertically, horizontally. God is working in his heart, but he didn't grasp one thing. And maybe this is what's keeping you from salvation today. You know what he says? In verse 19, treat me, Father. I'm not worthy to be your son. Treat me as a hired servant. Now, if you were a a rich landowner and had a lot of property and wealth, you'd have family in your house, and then outside of your house you'd have slaves that you gave no money to because you owned them. And you'd have what was called, in this text, hired servants. Hired servants lived in town. They didn't live at home with the family. But you paid them a wage. They made money. You paid them. You see what the younger son is saying? He's saying, hey, I want you to know I'd like to come back in this family, but I know that I'm not worthy of that. So here's my response. I'm going to pay you back. Just hire me on as a servant. See, here's what he's saying. I don't want any of your mercy. I'm not really looking for your grace. I don't want you to put me back in the family. I want to earn it back i want you to hire me i you know and if it takes me for the rest of my life so be it because i'm going to make you proud again and and, and notice the father will have none of it none of it the father is not standing out there and greeting the son by condemning him the first words are his mouth I, i said you ought to be ashamed of yourself that's not what he says He's not waiting for his son to grovel in abject humility. He's not saying, "I can't wait till my son comes back and tries to beg my forgiveness because I'm really gonna let him have it." That's not what he does or says. He doesn't communicate that to his son that, "Hey, before you start, I want you to know this better be good." Maybe, maybe those are some of the things that you and I might do. He doesn't do any of those things. Do you know what he does instead? The Bible says he runs to him. He has compassion on him. He throws, literally in in the Greek, he throws his arms around his neck and he kisses him because he wants us to know that if you're a sinner and you want to have a right relationship with God, here's what repentance is. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't work your way back into the family. You may not be worthy to be called his son, but he, not you, makes you worthy. See, it's not what you can do for him. It's what he can do for you. And that's why the father immediately says this. Let me put action to my words He said, bring out the robe. You know who the robe? The robe belonged to the father. He had the best robe. He wore it. And when you put the robe on the son, he's saying, you're my heir. See? And he says, bring the ring. Not just a beautiful diamond ring or some expensive ring. It was the ring that they transacted business with. It had the stamp of the father on it. He's now giving him authority to represent the father. You know why? Because he wants him back as a son. He says, put shoes on his feet. The slaves in the house and the hired people, they didn't get shoes from the father. Only the son wore shoes because he was privileged. You see what the father does? He he completely rejects any possibility that the son could come back and earn his way. Can I tell you this morning when you're listening, God loves you like that. God loves you so much, he's not saying how, he doesn't want you to see how bad you are so that you can try to have some personal reformation or some behavioral modification. He's not looking for you to step up your game, although you will if you know him. You know what he's looking for? He wants you to see that your sin is an addiction that only he can free you from. By grace, mercy. That's what his love is all about, see, Paul in Galatians says this. I love this text. Galatians 3, 26 and 29, he says to the believers, you are all sons of God through faith that is in Christ Jesus. All of you. And then he breaks it down. He says, and it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, it doesn't matter whether you're a Scythian or barbarian or free. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or you're a free citizen, he says. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity in the background that you have. It doesn't matter about your religiosity or not. Here's what he says. Man or woman, rich or poor, free or slave, we would say today black or white. It doesn't matter. See, God's grace is what it's about, And all of you, all of you can become sons of God. All of you. And it doesn't matter where you came from and how bad you were or how good you think you are. Jesus has to make you a son to be in his family. It's so radical. Listen to how Jesus tells the older son. The older son comes in and he can't handle it. You know why? Because he thinks that he has to earn his father's love too, by the way. And in the closing of the text, he gets so mad at his father. He says, you never gave me a goat and you give him the fatted calf. And here's the the bottom line. The the, the elder son says this. I have served, and it's the word "slaved." I have slaved for you my whole life. See? It doesn't matter whether you're religious or you're not religious, whether you're moral or immoral. See, they're both ways of trying to earn back God's favor. And the father will have none of it. And he tells the older son this, we have to celebrate. You know why? My son was dead, and now he's alive. That's salvation. It's not someone who was kind of bad off, a little bit, and I'm going to make them a little bit better. No, you were dead, and now you're alive. See, true repentance transforms lives like that. When you come to the realization that you've sinned against God and against others, and you've lost your worthiness, but Jesus, through his cross, death, and resurrection, can make you worthy so that you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, can be adopted back into his family. He offers that to all prodigals and all elder sons today who will come to the realization of what true repentance, true brokenness is all about. Would you see it today? Look at your life and circumstances. Do you see them And everything that's happening to you, do you see them as the kindness and goodness of God? See, he's trying to lead you to repentance. He's trying to lead you to faith in his son so that you can be a son of God. But you keep pushing him away and you keep running away and you keep trying to control your circumstances. Won't you just say today, it's time to go home? Won't you just say it today? Won't you say, God, I want to repent. I want to come home. And I'm not worthy, but but your grace and your mercy and your love and your kindness, it's enough. It's enough. You transform me. You change my life for your glory. He's waiting. In fact, he's running. If you'll receive him. Let's pray. with every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around. and In a few minutes, we're going to welcome in a few people here to our service, to our membership, I should say. But before we do that, with every head bowed, no one looking around, and perhaps on the live stream as well as here in person, God speaking to your heart through his word and Holy Spirit. And you really haven't grasped until this morning what true repentance is all about. It's not about trying to be good on your own. It's not trying to earn your way into God's family or into heaven. It's not trying to think someday at the judgment seat your good works will outweigh your bad because they won't. You need mercy and grace. You need to realize this. The Father will have none of it. What he wants is you. What he really wants is your heart, your life, all of you. Would you call on him today? Would you repent of your sins the biblical way and say, there's no way I could ever earn it, Jesus, but I know that you died for me and rose again. That's the payment for my sins. And I'm trusting in that alone. As we sang a moment ago, it's his cross and his death and resurrection. That's what I, I repent of trusting anyone or anything else, it's him, not my church, not my baptism, not my cat, the Catholic or, or, or the sacrament, none of those things. It's you. It's not what I'm worried about, about what you'll do to me. I, I want to come to the place where I prize and value what you have done for me. Would there be anyone this morning here and the sound of my voice, say, Pastor Walker, I've never come to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior by truly repenting, but I need to, and, and I want to this morning. Please pray for me. Would you, in the quietness of this moment with no one looking at would you just raise your hand and put it back down and I'll close in prayer by praying for you? Anyone? Anyone here this morning? Is there Christians here today who would say, Pastor Walker, all of life, Martin Luther says, all of it is a life of repentance. And I'll have to say, Pastor Walker, God's been trying to get my attention, and I'm not listening. Because I want the three bullet points. I want to do it on my terms and my timing. I want to kind of, control. no, I, I need to repent. You know what? There are some children who need to talk to their parents today and say, you know what? I need to come home. I, I, I live in the house, but I'm not home. And there are some husbands who need to talk to their wives today and then wives who need to talk to their husbands and they need to say this, I repent. I- I'm kneeling before God and I've done that already, but I'm going to come to you this afternoon or, or this week and I'm going to say, please forgive me. There are some church members people who are here or perhaps even not here this morning watching. You know what our church needs? We need repentance, true biblical repentance, supernatural repentance in the life of Christians who will acknowledge vertically and horizontally that they need to turn away from their sins and make it right with someone else. Because the longer you hold on to it and the less you repent, you're going to experience a breakdown and possibly a meltdown. And maybe God brought you here this morning as a Christian because he wants you to come to your senses. Father, you know the truth of the condition of every heart and every life here this morning. You see what we want others not to see. True repentance will be this, that we don't really be any longer care about what other people think. That we're not worried about what they'll think about what kind of sin I might have done. Because we want to be right with you and others. That's how strong the passion and desire would be. But again, only you can do that. We can't work it up. We can't stir it up. Only you can. May your spirit through your word do just that now for your glory and our good. And we'll praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.